So the question is, what is Advent? Well, yes, it is the appearing of Christ. Uh, and that's what it means. We're going to talk more about that in just a second because there's more to it than that. It's also a set of rituals. And all of you, I shouldn't say all of you, several of you don't come from churches that celebrate Advent. I never celebrated it growing up. And, but some of you did. And so we, we have a risk here. There's a danger. Because a ritual done well, uh, the, old, the older translations, translated 1 Corinthians, we see through a glass darkly, okay? And so a ritual done well, just for a moment, makes that dark glass clear and brings Jesus into our world in a very personal and realistic way. A ritual done poorly just makes you feel good about yourself, and that's just very destructive, very damaging, completely distracting from the reason we do it. And so those of you that come from higher church backgrounds, I'm just going to ask you for the next few weeks to really pay attention. Don't get caught in the trap. You will feel good because you're used to doing candles and things like that. But that's not the reason we do it. The reason we put together, and you're going to see this whole place transform week by week. It'll become more and more Christmassy as the weeks go by, so that by the time Christmas Eve comes, we're expecting two services. This place will be packed. You guys have been here before. You know that. A thousand at least. That's what we usually have. And so it'll be very Christmassy. And as we add to those decorations and we light candles, we're going to pause and invite you into a deeper walk with Christ so that you can enjoy Advent for what its purpose is. You see, it's more than just simply uh, an expectation. It's, it's, a, it's an attitude. It's an attitude that we have to cultivate so that we look forward to Jesus coming. We want him to come back. That's the whole reason for it. So we will have um, the elders and staff every year. It's our tradition. We write devotions, Advent devotions, based on maybe a reflection on a verse or a memory or a tradition our families had. And so we'll be sending those out every day of Advent. So it's a daily thing. And if you're not getting emails from me, uh, that means you're not going to get them. So go to our website on the front page and fill out the form and you'll get the... Um, you'll start getting them. They'll come next Sunday will be the first one. So if you wake up and it's not one in your inbox, then you know that you're not on the list for devotions. So Advent gives us a glimpse. Think of that language, a dark glass that becomes clear. A glimpse, a glimpse of what comes. Rebecca talked last week, um, thanks for all the feedback, by the way, for her, I passed it on. She talked about a fish being in the water, doesn't know what water is because it lives in water, and that's really the way, it's a good description of sin to us. We don't know what it's like not to have a sin nature. We don't know what it's like not to live in a culture, a world that is characterized by hostilities and fracture and, and all of that stuff. We simply don't know. And we can only, at best, look at the glimpses that Scripture gives us to see through that into the hope, the true hope of what we can't wait for. Come, Lord Jesus. That's a saying of the early church, and it's one of our sayings as well. So Advent gives us a glimpse, but it carries more than the idea of waiting for Christ. It carries a strong idea of eagerness. Paul uses this language all throughout his epistles, this language of eagerness. And um, I'm going to read one verse to you. It's out of Luke chapter 2. You all know it. 
It's one of the Christmas um, Christmas passages I get read. But I want you to grasp this sense of eagerness. So imagine this. Okay, this is this is when they bring Jesus into the temple. Okay, Ezekiel ten, the glory had left the temple. Uh, God walked away, and the glory had not come back. They had rebuilt the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah, and then under uh, under Herod and others, they had built the temple much bigger and even uh, very, very large, but the glory had not come back. They were following all the procedures and the rituals of the law, but the Holy of Holies was empty. There's no Ark of the Covenant. The Babylonians had destroyed that, and there's no glory of the Lord. None. And so they kept waiting, kept hoping that the Lord would return. The glory of the Lord, the first advent. They had that sense of eagerness that we should have for the second coming of the Lord. So we're going to step into this scene because this is the moment in history where the glory of the Lord returns to the temple. Okay? Luke chapter 2. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses... Joseph and Mary took him, that's Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. That's right out of Exodus 13. We saw that just a couple of weeks ago. And so remember when they, remember during the Passover, he passed over the Israel, Israelite families, but took the firstborn of all the Egyptian families, uh, of both humans and animals, and that was a statement. Remember, all the, all the plagues were about the gods of, of Egypt. And so the firstborn represented the passing into eternity of the next generation. And God took the firstborn life. That was one of his ways of saying, no, I'm the, one that, I'm the only one that has the power of life and death. You do not. So it's the one plague where the Israelites were not exempt. They had to actually put the blood on the doorposts. And so after that, then what God said was, you need now to consecrate, set aside your firstborn son. You sacrifice the firstborn animal and you sacrifice your firstborn son. No, 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 no wait, that's not what happened. No, you, 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 you honor the Lord with your firstborn and it's designed to remind you that the Lord is the giver of life. He is the one that, that, makes, that ensures that we continue to grow as a nation. And so the firstborn son was to be consecrated to the Lord. And so right off the bat, we see that here, this young teenage girl, Mary, and her husband, Joseph, are faithful to the law. Number one, they understood it. Number two, they walked to Jerusalem to make it happen. They're consecrating their son. But then something happens here that's very interesting. It says, it goes on in verse 24, they also went to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves and two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. Who, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting, and some of your translations say eagerly, because this word captures this sense of the faithful in Israel at this time. When are you coming back, Lord? When is the Messiah coming? When is your glory coming back into the temple? When is that going to happen? They couldn't wait, all right? And this is the picture here of Simeon. So he was eagerly waiting for the consolation of Israel, that's the return of the glory of God into the temple. It's just an empty building right now. And the Holy Spirit was on him. So we know he was a believer. It has been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. 
That's Jesus. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and he praised God. This is the moment where the glory of the Lord returned to the temple. What did John tell us? We beheld his glory. We saw it. We touched him. We saw the glory of the Lord. You see, the glory of the Lord did not return the way the Pharisees thought to the Holy of Holies. It came in the form of a baby. And so here's his praise. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. Okay, pause. Galatians tells us that God preached the gospel to Abraham ahead of time that all the nations would be blessed in him. That's the heart of the Christian gospel, the good news. We are to be a blessing to people. And so he gets this. You, you have prepared in the sight of all nations a light for revelation to the Gentiles. They need a light because it's a very dark world. And the glory of your people Israel. The glory of the Lord just came back. Surprise everybody. Those that didn't believe rejected it, and those that did were stunned. So, Paul tells us in Philippians 3, we are citizens of heaven, and we eagerly await the coming of our Savior. Okay, eagerness is something that has to be cultivated because we have lived life like this all the time. We're surrounded by terrible stuff, aren't we? All you have to do is pick any media outlet uh, and you can see what the world is like. And so to begin to cultivate a sense of eagerness, a sense of waiting for the Lord to return and put to rights all that's wrong, that has to be cultivated. Otherwise, you're distracted. I mean, the Hilton right here put up a Christmas tree before Thanksgiving a week ago. There are, the stores already have. Go to Costco. Christmas is already there. Their version, materialism, things. And so if you're not careful during this period of time, you'll be distracted. And what we're asking you is to take your time and walk carefully and stay focused on the Lord and what's going to happen when he returns. So the question then becomes, what happens while we're waiting? What are we to be doing? I'm going to read a passage out of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is one of what we call the pastoral epistles uh, because he's writing to Timothy and Titus and uh, they're pastors of local churches. So 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. Okay, hold on. When he wrote this, he's just a couple of years away from execution under Nero, and Nero was the governor. Later on, he's going to say, submit to the governor. Peter says the same thing under Nero, and both were executed by Nero. So this is just a good starting point of understanding our role as a church. So before I get to the next part of this, let me ask you a question. I've said many times, we get to make this church whatever we want. God wants it to be a great church. We can do that. Are we characterized by backbiting, gossip, slander, hostility, or 
are we characterized by loving people, kindness, generosity. You think of all the things that go in there, the joy that we feel when we see each other in the midst of struggle. I mean, if the world is going to look at the kingdom, where can they look? If they can't find it here, where are they going to find it? There's no other place. There's no other place. This is the only place that they can find what they're so hungry for. And if we're not living lives that way, then we've got a problem. And he goes on and talks about this. He said, uh, live to, we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Okay, this word godliness, when I was gone last week to San Antonio hearing all the theology, theology papers read, it was a wonderful time. It was a great time. Every theology paper was enriching to me and uh, just life-giving except one. There was one really bad paper, okay? The guy should be taken out back and shot. <laughs> An Old Testament scholar. The passage on your teenage children, if they are, dis- if they are rebellious and disobedient, you can take them uh, to the church leaders and, uh, well, in the Old Testament, you take them to the elders, and if the elders confer, then, then you stone them to death, you execute them. Okay? Wow, that's a harsh passage. We will probably get to that one of these days and talk about how God is righteous there. But he drew a straight line from there to the New Testament and said the same is true today. So if your children are rebellious, you, you excommunicate them. They said they, he deserved, they deserve to die, but we can't kill them. So we just said, you're dead to me and I have nothing to do with them. Wow, that's right out of Hinduism. You're dead to me. Okay, And uh, this is a up until this moment, a respected Old Testament scholar in my eyes. So I did get one bad one, but the rest of them are all filled with language of God's love and his grace. And scholars from all over the United States and pastors there really wrestling with how do we help our congregations to be that way? And so a couple of the papers I read, and I had some discussions around this word godliness. In the United States, when we talk about godliness, we're so individualistic. Your first instinct is to take it right to me. How godly am I? But that's not the intent of the word. You see, in the first century, the Christians were in a troubling spot um, because the law said you were supposed to say Caesar is the Lord, and they didn't want to say that. So Paul says, no, Jesus is Lord. Caesar had his own gospel, the Caesar of gospel, and Paul, uh, the uh, gospel of Caesar. And Paul talks about, no, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so all these peasants in the Roman Empire, when they're hearing this, new, this news, they're astonished by it because it's life-giving, it's refreshing. The word of God is always life-giving, always. It brings God's redemption into the world in a way that makes us go, oh, this is great, shalom, peace. And so they're hearing this, but the emperor has his own laws and ways of doing things. He wants the empire to be at peace, Pax Romana. Some of you, you have to dig way back into the cobwebs, may remember hearing that in a history class or two. The Pax Romana, you know what that was? Roman legions all over the, all over the world uh, controlling your life. No riots. Remember when uh, Acts, when the Ephesian, the, they had the big riot in Ephesus? And the town clerk finally calmed everybody down. He says, men of Ephesus, we're in danger of being censured by the Roman government because we've rioted. That's against the law. That just brings the legions right in there with military force. 
And so that's how they controlled the peace in the Roman Empire was by force, okay? Which, as Christians, we don't need an army to mandate, do we? We shouldn't. We shouldn't. That's why, by the way, I said a couple of Sundays ago, because several of you asked about the war in Israel, yes, I am pro-Israel. God chose them, not because they're better. He gave them a mission to bring the Messiah into the world, which they did. So I'm very pro-Israel. Paul asked in Romans, has God turned his back on Israel? Absolutely not. But I'm also pro-Arab because God went and found Hagar in the wilderness and took care of her. I'm very pro-Palestinian because God made all the nations. You've heard me say up here, I am not a Christian nationalist. I don't believe in that movement, but I am okay. I'm proud to be an American and a Christian. And I want my Cambodian pastors to be proud to be Cambodian and my Nepalese pastor to be proud to be Nepalese. You know why? Because I can go into my culture and reach people and they can go into their culture and reach people. God made all the nations on purpose. That's why I said, don't get into the politics of trying to decide which nation is right and which one's wrong. That's above your pay grade. Your only source of information is the one source you can't trust, the media, okay? And besides that, even if you had accurate information like Jonah, okay, why did Jonah run? Because the Assyrians were the most brutal people in the history of the world. And God said, they are my servants to do my bidding. That's a tough passage. And Jonah wanted nothing to do with it. So Jonah ran the other direction and God waited till he was dying. Jonah too, he'd gone to the bottom. He's encircled by the plants at the bottom, uh, the weeds at the bottom. And it says, as my soul was departing, he was drowning. Then God sent a fish and said, have I gotten your attention yet? And at the end of Jonah, he says, don't I have the right to love every human because I created them? You see, you don't really know what's happening overseas. You only know what has been told to you. So my advice to you, strong advice, is to not get into the politics of it, but get back to our Christian roots. Pray for the people that have been displaced. Pray for the the victims who have lost loved ones. Pray for the ones who are starving right now and don't have adequate water and and the things that they need to stay alive. Pray for them, okay? Pray for them. Go back to our Christian roots. Stay out of the political game. Let God do what God is going to do because he knows how to handle this. I don't. And I praise God he didn't put me in the position of being a politician, (laughs) you know, because I wouldn't want that responsibility. So this all comes back to this concept of godliness. So the Christians, the first century Christians recognized that the emperor had his own way of doing things and if they subscribe to that, then it looks like they believe in the religion of emperor worship. In Nepal, they will not be cremated because that's Hindu philosophy. Not because it's wrong, they don't want to be mistaken. It's against the law in Nepal, to have a cemetery. It's a Hindu country. So they quietly take their bodies a long ways away and bury them in a private place. They don't want to be mistaken. Okay? The Christians were facing that. So the emperor had come up with the language and the laws to make sure it's all structured the way he wants. All the Roman laws were were addressing the men. 
the fathers, the slave owners, those are all the males, okay? We're going to take care of the males, not the females. Sorry, women. That came a little bit later. <laughs> but then he had this word which, from which we get piety in the Latin word, pietas. And that meant that you're going to do what's in the best interest of the community according to Caesar. So they had to find a way to quietly rebel. Not in a way to wake up the Romans, but in a way that was different. And so they came up with this word godliness. Godliness. Because in here, they're saying, we want to do what's in the best interest because of our worship of God, not Caesar. So godliness is not an individual term. Godliness is what we live out right here with each other. That's what godliness, and, and if you put it in this context, everywhere you see, it's all over the New Testament. Paul has at least probably 15, 20 times just in his epistles. That's what he wants. He wants us to live godly lives in the face of each other. Why? Because that's what God asked. That was the covenant. So what are we to do? The first thing is to live godly lives. And during this Advent season, stay focused on being godly within the broader context. The second thing has to do with the covenant. I'm going to read to you a passage out of 2 Corinthians. Um, cause it, and again, there's several places I could go. And we've talked about this several times already in regard to uh, Exodus. But 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. And later on, he says, if we're going to boast, that's okay. Let's boast in what, the, what God has done. But he goes on. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And we talked about this way back in Leviticus. The law is still good, not the commands, not the letters but the spiritual intent behind it. We are ministers of a new covenant. Now you think about what we do here with communion, okay? Communion comes right out of the covenant in Exodus. We're going to get there after uh, the new year. But I've read it to you before. All the people are gathered about Sinai. Now what does God say? If you obey me, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. Guess what, Israel? You get to be a blessing to all these people. Now, Peter quotes that same passage because it's for the church too. Guess what, church? You get to be a blessing to every person. You get to fulfill the promise to Abraham. So he said, if you obey me, I will make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, not a better nation, a holy one. You're going to look different than the people around you, so they're going to want to come. That's why I said, if they can't find, if they can't find the kingdom here, where can they find it? Right? So then he goes up and gets the Ten Commandments, comes back down and repeats the covenant. And the people say, all that God has said, we will do. So he takes an animal, he sacrifices it, he takes half of the blood, sprinkles it on the altar to purify it, and he sprinkles the other half on the people. You know what that is? That's an invitation. That is an offer of a covenant. And the people respond appropriately. All that God has said, we will do. And now the covenant is intact. And God is faithful. He will always honor his side of the covenant. 
And for those who reciprocate and live lives of godliness, he blesses. And those that don't, he curses. It's real clear in Deuteronomy. It's real clear. So every time we do communion, you know what we're doing? We are agreeing to the covenant and making a pledge to live godly lives. We're going to do that actually in just a minute. Let me say one more thing about Advent before we get to uh, offering in communion or covenant. Some of you have traditions in your families. A lot of you don't. If you have children, that's one type of tradition for Advent. If you don't have children, that's okay. You can still do it with your spouse. If you're single, you can still do it. Find a way during this season from here to Christmas where you are every day focused on the goodness of the Lord. Nancy and I, we do an Advent wreath with the candles that match what we're going to have here next Sunday. We follow along there and we read a devotion. We try to read one every day. We don't always get there, but we try to. It's very short. It's just a short, you know, thing. We read, we pray together. It's just every day we're refocusing on how good God is and how much we can't wait for his son to come. There's all kinds of things that you can do. For those of you that have children around the corner over here by the children's ministry, we have several things out, and I think there'll be more as time goes by. Some resources, books, coloring things, things like that, that you can do with your children to keep them focused on why we're here. It's not about the buying of things and the gifts. Okay, those are all good. And it's not, and I would encourage you, make your tradition authentic. Don't be satisfied with simply lighting a candle. Take the time to explore why. To, to really cultivate that, I love you, Lord, and I can't wait for you to come back. That feeling, okay? You will feel good because it's something that you're doing, but don't make that the reason. Make the reason to shield us, not shield us from the truth, but to invite the truth in a life-giving way. But if you're not careful, all the, all the marketing around you is going to distract you to do everything they can to get you focused on what's happening in the world, the struggles, the problems, all of that. And it takes, it takes energy and intentionality to say, no, let's stop and focus. It only takes a minute every day to do that. So I would encourage you and I would um, ask as a church, Take the time during Advent. Take the time to really explore the goodness of God because the only hope the world has is right here. This is it. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for um, just being a good God being a gracious and generous God, a God who yearns eagerly to bless people, a God who yearns to see wars come to an end, hostilities. One day, Lord, we know that you'll come back. We can't wait for that because you are, you are so good to us. And uh, we can't wait to see what a world would look like where Everything is put to right. We know it's coming. We believe it. But Lord, during this season, help us as a church to stay focused on the right places and to keep generating that hope with our children, with each other, 
and with our friends and neighbors who don't know you. We ask these things in your son's name, Jesus, because we do believe in him. Amen.